What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm Tyler, and on the other end of the line, I think he's eating dinner. Is that right, Kurt? Uh-huh. Kind of multitasking there. It's all good. Uh, I'm Tyler, and so that's Curtis on the other end of the line there. Today, we are going to be focusing exclusively on the quarterback position. Uh, but trust us, guys, it's not on the guys we currently have on roster with Jacob Eason and Jake Fromm. That conversation has been beaten to death by now. Uh, so what we're going to do, rather, is focus on the future of the quarterback position in Athens beyond Eason and Fromm, and specifically our efforts when it comes to recruiting quarterbacks in the 2018 class, because it's, uh, it's interesting, to say the least, right now with where we are with that. But first, just a quick reminder that you can find us on Twitter at Glory underscore UGA. You can also email us at GloryUJPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we definitely love to get your thoughts on the quarterback conversation today. I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. Something I've been thinking a lot about and been uh, kind of waiting for a little while to do this show, and uh, here we have it today. So feel free to hit us up. Uh, you can also find the show on various podcasting platforms out there, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, all of the above. So check us out on any of those uh, if that makes the show a little easier, maybe a little more seamless for you to access at home, in the car, or exercising, wherever you are. All right, Kurt, let's go ahead and dive into this, because this, we've got a lot to talk about today when it comes to the quarterback position. Now, obviously, it's clear we have two high-profile former five-star recruits currently on the roster, Jake Fromm and Jacob Eason. Uh, but really, I mean, once you get those guys to campus, those five, stars only, those five stars don't really mean anything per se. But, I mean, the fact remains, both Eason and Fromm, they brought with them to campus a great deal of notoriety, name recognition, hype, and, I mean, skill, too. How much skill remains to be seen, but there's some skill there, no doubt. Uh, in, in my opinion, whatever that's worth, I don't know if that's worth anything, those two are going to have the quarterback position locked down probably, I'd say, at least until the 2020 season, right? Wouldn't you, Kurt? Uh, more than likely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe even 2021 if Fromm is able to redshirt and stays through his redshirt senior year, uh, which I don't know. We'll see how good he is. Maybe he'll leave early. I, I don't, right now, if I had to guess... Would you say that Fromm is gonna be a guy that'll stay his entire like all five years like Murray did? Yeah, well, I think Fromm will be a good quarterback for us. I still think the problem with him going pro is just his uh his tangibles. Right, you know, it's, his it's just the like measurables. That. Yeah, the measurables, and, yeah. and he's he's a little bigger than Murray was, but still, he's not he doesn't have the Jacob Beeson measurables. So and you see guys. Pros that are you know six one six two around his height, but they're also a lot faster. Bring I mean, look at like a guy like Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield, Oklahoma, right? I mean. Similar body type to a degree. I mean, Fromm's a little bit more jacked than than Mayfield. As all Mayfield's, you know, he's pretty thick there too. But he comes back for his uh, fifth season as well because I mean, he's not going to be a high draft pick. I mean, he'll probably get drafted. But he's not going to be a first round draft pick kind of guy that you're going to go out. He's not, he doesn't. There's at least not enough information out there telling him that it's in his best interest to go early. And I think Fromm might end up being in that same vein. We'll see. Maybe he'll come out and just light it up and the NFL scouts will be drilling all over him. He's got the work ethic and he's got the, the football IQ they look for. So we'll, we'll see. There's still a lot left to play out there. But I think there's a, at least a 50-50 shot he'll come back through his redshirt senior year if he ends up winning the job and holds on to it that long. Um, but beyond 2020-2021, the future of our quarterback position is a mystery of sorts because I mean, we only have those two guys two scholarship quarterbacks on the roster right now. So, Kurt, if, if you're Kirby Smart and Jim Chaney, what direction, looking beyond 2020-2021, the, the Eason and Fromm years, what direction would you take the quarterback position after Eason and Fromm move on? Because 
this is something you have to start playing for and recruiting for now. You cannot wait until the year before these guys leave and say, okay, now we're going to start playing it out. No, you've got to plan this out years in advance. So it's building those relationships with recruits. You don't start, like if, if we're recruiting somebody in the 2018 class, you don't start building that relationship in 2018. You start two, three years prior to that, setting you up to be able to possibly land them when the time comes for them to make their decision. So we've got to start planning for this. So if you are Kirby, if you are Cheney, what direction do you take the quarterback position after those two guys? Um, I kind of continue to do what they're doing right now, going after the dual threat. Is that is that really who you want us? That's who you prefer to see us pursue moving forward. I do because the right thing right now is dual threat brings so much more to the table, allows you to do more things. And you know, dual threat is not just being a running. Like I want a true dual threat, someone like what Justin Fields brings to the table, where he you know he can throw on the run, he can th- deliver strikes, and he's not just relying on his feet, but the feet add that make it that much more difficult to stop him. Um, well, there's always been that stigma attached to, to the dual threat name, right? It's like, well, yeah, they're dual threat. They, they can run well, they can pass well, but they don't do either one necessarily fantastic. They do one really well, and they're okay at the other one, right? Whereas dual threat guys, traditionally we're seen as these guys who, who could throw the ball well enough, but they weren't expert passers. But I think that's yeah, starting like, to change. Yeah, look at Nick Marshall. He was an okay passer, but it was just because teams couldn't, couldn't go two safeties deep. Right, he's the more old-school dual threat where he was – uh, a very deadly guy with, with his legs on the ground, but he could, and he, could, he had a great arm, but it was kind of that raw arm where it wasn't you know it wasn't refined, it wasn't a great pure passer. Whereas you see, like you mentioned, Justin Fields is a great example. He's a guy that can run the ball like crazy, but he also is a very accomplished passer as well. So you're starting to see more and more of that where the guys truly are dual threats. And see, the reason I'm a big fan of, or you know I'm interested in going with that forward is the fact that when you really look at it. The thing is that when you go dual threat, your offense is just that much more difficult to stop. I mean, there's just so much more you can throw out at teams and stuff that you couldn't do with the mobile quarterback. I mean, look at some of these times with the trouble where Easton got in with the pressure and stuff. Yeah, we had a terrible offensive line, but if it had been a little bit more mobile, it may have helped him just a little bit. And even at the Absolutely. same time, it allowed you can do so much more offensively. You know, yeah, you can do the read options, but it just allows you to get so much more speed on the field. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what the game has become anyways. I mean, yeah, look at most of these teams that have won, other than Alabama, who they really won it because their defense was, you know, really good and they had good players around them. But other than that, the teams that have won it more, most recently have been going to more dual threat systems. Even Alabama's gone to the dual threat. And that says something. Do you think you – that's very true. That's, that was the point I wanted to bring up. But let's, let's talk about this for a second. Do you still think you can win with both, with a pro-style guy quarterback and a, and a dual-threat guy quarterback? Do you think you should have an equal still, chance to I, win I with both? I still think it's capable, uh, possible, yes. The thing is, you just have to – to be a good pro-style quarterback, you also have to have that those kind of weapons around you. Exactly. Like Ethan, like yep. Ethan and people like that, if they had you know offense line – I mean, look at it. In, in most situations, if he has enough time to throw, he completes strikes. Well, that's if we had a good offensive line and receivers that you see like some like – that some of these schools have, they'll just go up and get the ball. Then there's nothing to stop a pro-style quarterback from putting up four or 500 yards a game throwing, realistically. But everything has to be perfect or, or much closer to perfect around you than is the case with a dual-threat guy. That's, yeah, you can hide stuff with right. dual-threat. Exactly. You can hide it as much as pro-style. Exactly. I, I think you can win with both. I mean, and the numbers bear that out. Look, if you look at the, the three years of the playoff system so far, right? Well, we've had 12 teams that made the college football playoffs. If you look at that, based on my calculations, what I would classify as a dual-threat quarterback, seven of the 12 teams over the first three years of college football playoff have had dual-threat quarterbacks. You go back to the first season, you had uh, you had Ohio State. I'm going to classify Cardell Jones as a dual-threat. Throughout the entire season, 
you had um, what's his name? JT Bear. Yeah, JT Bear, right? Who was a, who's definitely a dual threat guy. So I, I count Ohio State in the first season, and I also count Oregon, obviously with Marcus Mariota. That's two. That's two out of the four teams in the first season, in the first year of the playoffs. Then you go to the second year of the playoffs, and you have Clemson with Deshaun Watson, clearly a, a dual threat, maybe a prototype of a dual threat quarterback. And then you, I would also and tell me if, if you agree. I, I consider Baker Mayfield a dual threat quarterback. See, he doesn't run I, as much, but he creates a lot I of do. Wait, okay, they don't they don't have as many design plays with him running the football, but they have some. It's not like it's it's foreign to them. He and he makes a ton. Lot, which, he bootlegs a ton. He yeah. gets out of the pocket often. He's a short dude. You got to get out of the pocket to create throwing lanes, and he makes things happen. Those legs when they, when things break down, Baker Mayfield's going to take off and get you a first down when you need it on, on a third long situation when they have you defended perfectly. So I even though he may, he's not Deshaun Watson. He's, I still count him as a dual-threat quarterback. So I'm going to go with – that's four, that's two in the second season of the playoffs. That's four right there. And if you go to last season, I would say three of the four. You've got Ohio State with JT Barrett. you got Alabama. And then, of course, you got you got Clemson. And that means two of the three champion, national championships in the playoffs go back to Ohio State the first season. And then Clemson last year, they were dual-threats. But they're still, they're still teams. You know, you had Michigan State. Uh, oh, how did they fare? You had Washington, although how did they fare once you got there? You had Alabama in the second season who – who won the national championship. So you can definitely win with both, but to win on the big stage like that consistently, you have to be in Alabama who has all the players around. You have the offensive line. You have the running backs. You have a, you have the receivers. You have a, a Ridley out there. Well, most teams don't have those players around those quarterbacks. So while you can still win with both, I think, as you mentioned, if you have a dual threat guy, you can cover up some of those deficiencies on your roster, like you, like last season, do you think if we would have had uh, if we had a dual threat quarterback last year, even a dual a dual threat true freshman, if we would have had Jalen Hurts, do you think we would have gone seven and five in the regular season? Yes, you really do. I don't. I don't think we would have gone seven well, and five. I, I don't know. You got to think of how bad Hurts looked when he started getting pressured. But it's it's not a matter of. I think Eason's a better quarterback. I would take Eason as a you know long term, but. In the situation we're in last year with so many deficiencies, particularly in the offensive line, I think Hurts would have given us another dynamic that could have maybe won us another game or two. Uh, now, I we would have gone undefeated. I, I, think, I, think, I think we do do better. I think we, while I think Easton won us Missouri game, which I don't know how much Hurts in a situation like that could That's have done. true. That's a fair point. But um, it'd probably say Vanderbilt and Tech both, especially Tech at the end of the game where you could start doing read options and things like that. It would just – I mean, the biggest issue we had in the entire team last season, really the, the primary issue holding us back across the board. Now, there were other holes too, but the offensive line was the primary weakness. Nick Chubb would have looked a lot better last year if we had a quarterback that could have been a threat running the football. Our offensive line, you would have masked a lot of those weaknesses. Not, you still would have gotten pressure on from time to time, but there's a lot of things you can do with a dual threat quarterback to make it where, honestly, offensive linemen don't even have to pass block. You can run RPOs all day long, and they don't have to. They don't have to pass block for a second. They block run every single play. So you mask that deficiency right there. I think we would have won another game or two. We, I, I still don't think that we would have gone undefeated or anything like that. We wouldn't have been as good as Alabama because we don't have the, the personnel Alabama has across the board. But I think we might have won an extra game or two. I really do because you would have been able to mask some of those deficiencies. Now, long term, I think that Eason, once we fill out the roster around him. I would take Easton all day, but we just haven't had the chance at this point, or at least last season, the roster wasn't filled out. I don't know. Exactly. Look at someone like Jake Coker. That guy was nothing special, but he had the roster around him, which allowed him to be successful. Yeah. And Jake Coker was an underrated runner as well. I mean, he wasn't, I wouldn't classify him as a true dual threat, but 
when he needed to use his legs, he could use his legs. Yeah, that's true. He would get some yards when he could. Yeah, kind of. I mean, he it, wasn't a statue. Like a Connor Shaw kind of guy. Um, he, I think Connor Shaw's maybe a little bit more mobile, but he's kind of like I would call Connor Shaw like the, the halfway point. You know, like he's not necessarily a true dual threat runner. But he's not a pro style guy either. He's a guy that can take off, and we're really victim of this many times. We're just, you know, you, you defend the the pass perfectly, you cover everyone perfectly, and he just takes off and guts you, demoralizes you, we're getting twelve yards on a third and twelve, and exactly twelve yards can out of bounds. Kind of that, that midpoint. I'd be happy with a guy like that too, you know? Yeah. That, that can just make a few things happen. Um, so that's definitely one reason for me. I got like five reasons here that I would go with because I want to make sure I fully explain myself and why I, I think that's the way for us to go. Moving forward, I think for a lot of dog fans, it's kind of blasphemous to talk this way, right? Because yeah. like when when have we ever had that? Like we, it's not something we're traditionally a pro style team. Shockley was the closest we've had. Who was? Shockley. Shockley, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, but that one year interlude, basically. But I absolutely right now one hundred percent want us to transition after Easton, after Fromm are gone, because I think those guys are just elite pro style quarterbacks. Or at least had the potential to be that. I wanted to start to transition to recruiting more dual threat type options, which we seem to be doing right now in this 2018 class. So, as you mentioned, um, as you brought up there, just the fact that they mask a lot of weaknesses that you might elsewhere have on the offensive line. You just you don't have to have the perfect team around them, okay? And, and you can have situations where you don't. We have pro style quarterbacks that can still succeed without everyone being perfect around them. But I think everything else has to be in place much has to be much more closer to being in place than it does if you have a dual threat guy. You can just mask some of those weaknesses. Now, tell me what you think about this one. Here, my second reason I, that I think we need to move towards more dual threat guys is simply that they are easier to find. There are more of those guys, more athletes out there that can that can throw the ball well enough than there are true, elite, pure passing pro-style quarterbacks. Do you agree with that? Um, I think the argument can be made for that, yeah. I mean, look at all these times, like, some of these kids in high school, I mean, especially now now that high school is going to more of a, you know, spread type system looking for kids like that, then they're being, they're being produced at a higher rate. So how many true elite pro style quarterbacks do you find out there these days? They are rare. When you find them, you hit the jackpot, but they're so hard to find. I mean, we are a perfect example of that. You, you have Matthew Stafford and then, okay, well, we have Joe Cox after that, right? And then you have Aaron Murray who I think was a really good pro-style quarterback for us. He didn't have all the measurables that Stafford had, but he was a really good pro-style quarterback for us. But after that, we had so much trouble finding one after Murray that we got ourselves into a hole. You know, we got settled for Grayson Lambert, a guy that's a, a that got beat out at Virginia to be a quarterback. You got Bryce Ramsey, who we thought was going to be that next pro-style quarterback, but we missed on it. We just flat out missed on it. And then you have to rely on a true freshman from Washington transitioning to a brand new system that he's never played before. In in 2016, that leads to a seven and five regular season. Like they're out there, but I think they're hard to find. I think it's easier to go find a guy that is very athletic and hurts you with with his legs from the quarterback position, but also is at least an adequate passer that you can build on. I think they're just more of those guys out there. But I could be wrong. I don't know. I just think at this point there are. All right, now number three, and this one this is where I'm gonna get a little technical with this guy. So I apologize if this isn't your thing, but I, again I want to make sure I explain fully why I think this is the way to go for us. So number three here, and again, I just want to throw out a fair warning. This is going to be some technical X's and O's, nuts and bolts type talk. So if it's not your thing, I apologize. But I think it enhances your running game. Obviously, because the guys themselves can run the football, 
But more so than that, I think it makes your other running backs, the other guys that can carry the ball, it makes your other ball carriers more effective. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, and let me explain why I think this. This is where, again, this is where I'm going to get a little technical here. Dual threat quarterbacks just put so much stress on defense. We've talked about this before, but at its core, football is all math. With a numerical advantage, that typically is ends up being the deciding factor when the talent gap is within reason. Now, if, if you're talking Georgia versus, oh, uh, I don't know, Grayson High School, you know the talent gap is not close. So we would destroy them no matter what. But if the talent gap is close, if you're talking SEC teams, oftentimes that numerical advantage is the deciding factor on any given play. Remember the old phrase, you know, I'm talking run to open up the pass. You remember that? People still say that, you know, the run to open up the pass. That's what we want to do, or we want to throw to open up the run. But typically it's we want to run to open up the pass. And all that refers to is running the football well enough to force defenders to bring additional defenders or to force defenses to bring additional defenders near the line of scrimmage so as to gain that numerical advantage in the box and essentially stifle the offense's running game, right? It makes sense. But then the offense responds to that mathematically driven action by the defense when they bring more guys in the box, by then attacking the defense in the area where they where the offense now has a numerical advantage, which would be in the defensive secondary. And that's running to open up the pass. And then the defense has to move a secondary because that's you at this point the defenders the defense has had to move a secondary defender closer towards line of scrimmage. And where the quarterback is the threat to run the football himself, the offense is almost always gonna have the numerical advantage in the box. Think about it. A pro, in the running game in a traditional running state, let's say I formation, a pro-style quarterback does not have to be accounted for in the run-defense equation. If you're a defense accounting for the, the running game, you don't have to factor in a pro-style quarterback. He's, he hands the ball off, and then he kind of stands and watches. He's essentially dead weight in the running game. The defense could hold its own against offenses in these situations because you have seven defenders to match up with seven blockers, being, with those seven blockers being five linemen, a tight end, and a fullback in your traditional I formation. But when you add the quarterback run game into the equation, now you have, and you've all heard this term before, now you have what we call the plus one scenario. And anyone who's watched football, you've heard that term. All that means, plus one, is that the tailback, who is usually the ball carrier, now becomes an extra blocker, which now gives the offense eight blockers to block seven defenders. And there is your plus one scenario. So that those that numbers game right there enhances your running game. It makes your your running game in general, whether it's the quarterback or the running back carrying the load, it makes you all that much more effective because you get a numbers advantage. And that is at the most basic level. When you start talking about zone reads where a defender is left unblocked so that a quarterback can option off of them, that numerical advantage of the offense becomes even more pronounced. And when the zone read was first unveiled, you know, it was the backside defensive end that was being optioned off of. But eventually, as they do with the cat and mouse game between offenses and defenses, defenses got smart to what the offenses were doing and figured out a way to counter it with what we call scrape exchanges where the defensive end and linebacker essentially exchange responsibilities, thus throwing off the quarterback's read. And offenses have now responded to that by mixing up the defender that is left unblocked or optioned off of. Sometimes it's still that backside defensive end. Sometimes now it's a defensive tackle. Sometimes it's an aggressive space backer. It can be game plan specific, really whoever the offense wants it to be for a specific game plan. But regardless, the fact remains, when you can take a defender out of the run-defense equation without dedicating a physical blocker to him, it allows you to double-team front-side defenders and gives the offense an even greater numerical advantage. And that is an advantage that you cannot get 
without a true dual-threat quarterback that poses a threat with his legs that defenses have to account for. Uh, but my fourth reason here is not only do I think a dual-threat quarterback makes your run game more potent, but even though you have that stigma attached to dual-threat quarterbacks uh, in terms of them not being a true passing quarterback, it, I think a dual-threat quarterback can still make your passing game more potent. You kind of mentioned this at the outset, Kurt. And look, guys, generally speaking, pro-style quarterbacks, they are generally better pure passers. Although, I think, as you mentioned with, with Justin Fields, guys like that, that's increasingly becoming less the case. But with a good dual-threat quarterback that poses a real threat with his legs, it doesn't freaking matter. If, if they're not as good, they, they, the reason they don't have to be as good of pure passers is because they see so much one-on-one coverage, right? Yes, exactly. Because... If you see one-on-one coverage that often, it's much easier for them to read those coverages and throw against those coverages and hit big plays down the field. The coverages they see are so vanilla that to them, almost every game is like a spring game in terms of the coverages that they see. That's why guys like Cam Newton and Robert Griffin III, they could put up huge passing numbers in college and in the early parts of their career in the NFL when they were a threat to run the football. It wasn't that they were great passers. It wasn't that they were great students of the game in the vein of Peyton Manning and read defenses left and right. What it, what it was is by forcing defenses to account for the running threat they posed, Newton and RG3, they limited what defenses could do in terms of disguising coverages. And then once RG3 hurt his knee and wasn't the same runner, he all of a sudden falls off the face of the earth. No coincidence there. Cam Newton had the worst year of his career last year after being forced to scale back his running due to the concussions he was getting. Coincidence there? I don't think so. So the moral of the story here is when Robert III and Cam Newton can't run the ball, defenses can actually throw real coverages at them and force them to actually have to read a defense and actually go through their progressions, which they have not shown the ability to consistently do. Uh, And dual-threat quarterbacks, they get those one-on-one looks because defenses have to dedicate more defenders to the box in the effort to respond to the run threat posed by their ability to run the football. And we haven't even mentioned RPOs here, where dual-threat quarterbacks give teams the ability to essentially isolate individual defenders in situations where those defenders are always going to be wrong as long as the quarterback makes the correct read. A very simple one-man read. So I think it opens up your running game, makes you more effective there. I also think it makes it more, you, more, you a more effective passing. You can hit more explosive plays down the field, not because these guys are necessarily better passers than pro-style guys, but simply because the coverages that they see, which are dictated by their ability to run the football, are much more vanilla and easier to throw against. It's just easier to complete passes against those types of coverages. And the last reason I have here, it lets you simplify your offense. You know, the 20-hour rule that we've got in college football, I think this is one of the most underrated aspects of modern college football that there is. I don't think people talk about this enough. With a 20-hour rule, you only get so much time with your players. The days of having 300-page playbooks... You can't have that anymore. You just, there's just not enough time in the day. You have to scale back your offense as much as possible. You and with a with a pro style quarterback, you kind of you're more likely to have a big thick playbook, like a West Coast style offense, than you are with a dual threat guy. With a dual threat guy, you can have just a handful of plays that will always work because you have so many options built into them. Like take Auburn for example. What's the story with Auburn? You know, they it's typically with Gus Malzahn. They all if you really watch them closely. They don't run a ton of different plays, you know? It's it's essentially the same play over and over again, but they just have so many options built into it based on how the defense reacts. It might look like a different play. They put some window dressing, a little motion on there, 
maybe a different formation, but the core plays, there's just a handful that they run. There might be seven or eight core plays that they really run, but it looks different by based on how they disguise it and based on what they actually do because you have so many options built in based on what the defense does. So for all those reasons, I think we definitely should start moving towards a dual-threat quarterback. I think that's the way for the future. I think we're you kind of handicap yourself if you don't. With the way the college football rules are written, with the offensive lineman essentially being able to block run on every single play, and you can be four yards down the line, down the field, and quarterback can still throw the football, you show run, and the defense is reactive. That's what they read. They read they read guards in terms of are you pass blocking or are you run blocking. If you run block, defense is going to attack the line of scrimmage, and then you can just carve them up that way. So I think you're you're kind of handicapping yourself playing with one arm behind the back essentially if you don't take advantage of the possibility of playing with a dual threat quarterback. But all right, enough of that. I know that's really technical. Sorry if that wasn't up your alley, but it wasn't your cup of tea. But I want to make again make sure I explain fully why I think that's the way for us to go. But let's move this conversation more specifically to our quarterback recruiting efforts in the 2018 class. Um, when you look at the quarterback offers we've sent out for the 2018 class, I mean, a pretty clear pattern has emerged. We're clearly targeting pursuing dual-threat quarterbacks. If you look at the 247 sports uh, composite ratings in their recruiting database, we have currently offered 13 of what I would classify as dual-threat quarterbacks, while we've only offered five pro-style guys. So, Kurt, what do you make of where we are right now in our quarterback recruiting this 2018 class? Are you comfortable with where we are? I, I'm not super comfortable. I think the biggest thing is with the numbers, I think the fact is, like you said, there's more dual threat guys right now that are you know out there to recruit. Yeah, there's just and more at the same time, we have a better chance, I think, of landing those guys than we do the other guys because we can pitch them at something different. Well, let's talk about that pitch. That's something that I'm curious about here because look, uh, it seems like we're having a tough time getting any interest. Like we, we're all, we're just throwing out offers left and right every week. It seems like we're just offering some random new guy, and they're all and they all seem to be dual threats, but. I don't know how receptive these guys are, are, are to our offers because let's be real, I mean, quarterback recruiting, that's something that is on a earlier schedule than most of the other positions. The quarterbacks typically commit a little bit earlier. They are the cornerstones of the class more often than not and go out and recruit people. Those are the guys that other recruits are kind of drawn to. You know, We have a Jacob Beast, you have a Jake Fromm. Other recruits are drawn to them. So those guys typically commit a little earlier, and we're behind in the game. We're, if we're just now offering some of these guys – heading into the summer of their senior season, we're a little bit behind. So if you're Jim Chaney, if you're Kirby Smart, what is your pitch to these dual-threat quarterbacks? How are you going to convince them to go ahead and pull the trigger and commit to the G? Um, the biggest thing is I think we just got to – which what you try to – we have to get them to practice and show them, you know, that we don't have people on roster that can do what they can do. How do you sell them on that, though? A guy like Jim Chaney has, does not have that in his background. He doesn't have a history with dual-threat guys. I think that's the danger. Um, I, I think it's very difficult for us, especially. I mean, especially it's what happens when you get a new staff. Then um, you don't. Yeah. We don't have some of the relationships with these kids long term. Then you know, even even if uh, you know we didn't land these guys like Trevor Lawrence and that we'd gone after before, if we had had time to build some relationships with other guys, we might not be in this situation. But I think the biggest thing is, um, I think they just want to. I mean, even all right, like we said, you don't even have to be the best dual threat guy on the map or on the planet, really, to be able to do something different than what we have on that roster right now. Yeah, I think you hit it there. I think that's the way we have to go with this. The message we have to send to them is simply, you bring us something different. We have no one on our roster right now with your skill set. If you commit to us, you represent an entirely different skill set. No one else on our roster has that. And 
you're going to be given the opportunity to come in and compete with Jake Fromm once Easton leaves. Looks like Easton's probably, I mean, let's, I mean, Easton more likely than not is going to have this job locked down for another couple of years. But you got to sell them on the chance to come in and compete with Fromm after Easton's gone. It'll be an open competition. You have a completely different skill set, and it's a skill set that we value. And it's a skill set that we want to kind of highlight moving forward. Kind of bring something different to the table. Now, is that something that recruits are going to buy? I don't know. I don't know. These coaches are, I mean, look, college coaches are, they're half football coach and half professional salesman, right? So yeah. they're going to have to figure out a way. And I trust Kirby Dome. He's a master recruiter, master salesman, and he's, a, he's amassed a, a group of master salesmen around him. I mean, this League of Shadows thing with the defensive backs, I love this. You know, it's, it's, it's a sales technique. And we're gonna have to think of something. We're gonna because ha- they're not biting on it right now. And maybe it's they're they're in wait and see mode. Maybe it's the fact that we were so late at the table and offering some of these guys and we didn't land uh, our initial targets uh, with Lawrence and Emory Jones. And now we're trying to play catch up. And they feel somewhat I don't know neglected by us. And they kind of they're holding a grudge against us for that. I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. And let's talk about that for a second. Do you think we made a mistake in really focusing our attention on Trevor Lawrence and Emory Jones exclusively early in the process and kind of, not I don't say ignoring, but certainly not giving these other guys near as much attention as we did Lawrence and Jones, kind of putting our eggs in their basket? Um, you know, you could say it was, but I think at the same time, we had so much room to make up that we couldn't afford not to give them the attention. Yeah, it's one of those things, I think it's easy to say now, right? Like it's easy, yeah, it's, it's easy so to look easy back, to look and, back say, and say, yeah, it's easy to look back and say, hey, we didn't land Lawrence, we didn't land Jones. What were we thinking, man? That was a horrible mistake. Yeah, now in retrospect, it looks that way, but at the time, did we know that? I don't know. No. I think I think it was probably like a guy like Trevor Lawrence. You have to go after him, an in-state guy, Cartersville High School. You got to go after him. He's in your backyard. You have to go after him. You have to give him your best shot. It looked like honestly, we had him. If he would have committed before the season, like he planned to initially. We it looked like we were going to be his landing spot, but Clemson, you know, allegedly from all reports, got him to hold off and just kind of see how the season played out. You basically convinced him that Kirby hasn't done anything yet. Let's see how good he can do in his first season at Georgia. See what their offense looks like, and obviously our offense was a train wreck last year. And he got to see that up close and personal. And while Clemson ends up winning the national championship, so kind of made the decision a little easier for Trevor um, and Emory Jones. You know, by all reports, his dream offer was Ohio State. So when they offered. It was kind of a done deal there. But the fact remains, like, even though I don't think it was necessarily a mistake focusing on those two early, I wish we would have given Justin Fields that same attention earlier. We waited until late in the season last year, like November, to offer him. Whereas I was saying all on this guy is just as good as Trevor Lawrence. and I, In fact, I would take Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence. I think he brings that additional dual threat element to the table that Lawrence does not. He's not quite as accomplished and polished a passer as Lawrence, but he's not that far off. And you've added in the equation what he can do with his legs. The dude is going to be a beast. And I think we waited too long to offer him. I wish we would have given all three of those in-state quarterbacks, Lawrence, Jones, and Fields, the attention early in the process. Whereas... We did, we did with the first two, but not so much with Fields. And that's put us behind the eight ball. Fields commits to, or to Penn State, and we're fighting. And I think of those three, we, would you say we probably have the best chance to flip Fields? So they're all three committed elsewhere. Would you say? Yeah, I think of anyone, it's probably him, especially with his sister and everything. Yeah, his sister, if you guys don't know, she's coming to Georgia, right? She's already committed. I believe so. Yeah, I believe that's that's how it is. And, and there's some – and look, you – with recruiting the news you get, 
things change. You don't know what to believe or what not to believe. But I, you hear reports, you hear rumors that his family would love for him to play a little closer to home. And every trip he makes to Penn State up there, they realize how long of a trip it is and how hard it will be for his family to go up there and see him and watch him play. And much easier, obviously, right, to uh, play here in Athens. So, but I don't, again, don't know how much to put into that, but I think if there is a guy that we have a chance with, he seems to be the one that's maybe a little bit more receptive than Lawrence and Jones. I mean, we've almost essentially stopped recruiting Trevor Lawrence. Because we just, yeah, I wish I would too. Yeah, and, and I, I would, yeah, I, at this point I would too. I mean, he's, he's, he's in there. He's pretty much entrenched with Clemson, and hey, more power to him, whatever. Uh, Emory Jones, I, it looks like we're still trying to recruit him, but that dude's going to Ohio State. I just, I don't see any scenario where he's not. I mean, that's a childhood dream offer. He got it, uh, but Fields different. Like you're saying, Jones, it's a childhood offer where what well, that's not the case for Fields. Yeah, with Fields, you know, Penn State had a really good year last year. They, you know, they won the Big Ten, uh, and James Franklin has a history of dual threats. I mean, Trace McStory, the quarterback right now, is a little bit more of a dual threat guy, so he has that history. And he could sell Fields on that, um, and he could also say, "Well, hey, your home state team ignored you. You know, they were they were busy paying attention to Trevor Lawrence and Emory Jones, and you were kind of on the back burner, which was not." completely untrue i mean there's a lot of truth in that so we got a lot of catch up to play there but we're making an effort there and i'm not completely giving up i still say it's more likely than not he ends up at penn state but at least he's listening from what we hear he's somewhat receptive to what we have and uh might be some family influences that might be uh in our favor there we'll see but other than those three the big three in georgia which is kind of unprecedented to have th- that those three guys that are top 25 caliber overall players nationally in the state of Georgia, the quarterback position, that's unprecedented. But there's some other guys, too. Um, so other guys that we are currently after, outside of the big three, who do you like the best? I'm probably going to go with the guy from Central Gwinnett. Yep, Jaron Williams is exactly who I have. My opinion on him is, has evolved, though. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about him much on the show before, maybe a little bit last year, but... Look, Curtis, Curtis and I are both from Gwinnett County originally. So we've had, you know, we go back and we watched a lot of high school football around there. We both played high school football in Gwinnett. Um, I had no, no bunch of the coaches in Gwinnett County still. Um, and I watched Jaron Williams play at Central, uh, not this past year, the year before, and, and some this past year as well. But the year before, like, he was incredibly raw. Incredibly raw. Like, I wasn't sure that this guy was going to actually stick at the quarterback position. Like, I didn't think quarterback was going to be his position in college, based on what I saw. But to give him credit, I mean, he put the time in. And last time I saw him, it was night and day difference. I mean, this guy can put he, – he's not as accomplished a passer as Justin Fields or Emory Jones or Trevor Lawrence. But based on where he was coming from, he's a totally different player. He's clearly a threat with his legs, but he has greatly improved his accuracy. He's greatly improved his ability to read defenses and know where to go with the ball. He's more decisive. He's putting the ball on the money more consistently, putting more touch on the ball. He sort of showed a solid arm. And actually, um, I, I, didn't, I, get, I wanted to go up there, but I didn't get a chance to go. Last weekend at the Nike opening camp in Charlotte, at that regional, from what I hear reports are, he was just as good as anybody there at the quarterback position, and that includes Trevor Lawrence, who was up there. So Jerry Williams is a guy that I am really high on. Was committed to Kentucky, backed off that commitment because college programs have seen the improvements he's made, and there are, he's got a lot more options on the table, including an offer from us that we put out there early, or I guess in April. However, I think we're behind the eight ball. Do you really give us a realistic chance to land him at this point? Um, I think it really comes down to his other offers. 
He's got a ton of offers, man, right now. I just I think he's harboring resentment against the home state team. And this happens when you're the home state team. When you offer a guy, there's a good chance he if he, if he won the offer that he's going to be an early commit. So you have to be sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you want to offer this guy and that you will take his commitment. Because if he does not want to commit, or if he does want to commit and you're not ready to take that take that commitment, then you're burning bridges. And those are bridges that you cannot afford to burn because you're going to be dealing with those those programs in state year after year. Whereas whereas a an out of state program can be a little more willy nilly in throwing out offers because if if they have to back off a guy and don't want to take his commitment, they don't have to deal with that that high school as consistently as the the home state team does, right? So yeah. we finally decide, okay, we want this guy, but by this point, he's getting a lot of attention, and we have a lot of ground to make up. I I hope that we can land him because on. Other guys on the board right now, I think he's probably our best option. But oh, I don't know, man. I think it's an uphill battle. I still do. I, I mean, look, and Curtis and I, we said this before, we're not the recruiting guys. That, like, we evaluate the recruits, but we don't go out there and talk to the recruits. We're not the guys that go out there and do interviews with them and, and have the inside information on where they're leaning, where they're going. You know, We don't have contacts around the around them and their families and coaching staff. I, but I can watch the guys, and I, I watch them often. Go watch them in person, watch them at camps, watch tape. I can give you the evaluation of the player, but where he's going, I don't know. But from the reports I do read, it's still an uphill battle for us. Outside of him, though, is there anyone out there that that excites you at all? Not really, no. I mean, there were a couple guys. I mean, James Foster, I liked him, but Missouri made him their number one option. And he, he talked about that all the time. Missouri, When he went to Missouri, they told him that he was the number one guy on their board. They rolled up the red carpet, whereas he was just another guy for us. So that attention, sent him to Missouri. I like Joe Milton, but he just recently committed to Michigan, so he's off the board. So I, honestly, I have no idea where we're going to go in this class. So it, it remains to be seen. Do you think that we can realistically sign? An, I don't want to say an elite because we're not going to get an elite quarterback. But do you think we can realistically sign a guy that has the potential to possibly contribute for us down the road in this class? Uh, potentially. I'm not. I'm not sold. But what is it like? Why are these guys not giving us the time of day? Is it just because we have Fromm and Eason in the fold and there's no class separation there? It, it hurts us, yes. I think at the same time, like you said, we haven't shown them. We know how to use a dual threat. Yeah, and if those are the guys we're targeting, we, have, we don't have that history. We definitely don't. And like I said, you know, we're kind of late to the game in a lot of these guys because we put a lot of our eggs in the basket of Lawrence and Jones early and you miss on them and then you got to go to plan B. And let's be real, nobody likes being plan B. No one, will, no one likes that. They wanna, they're going to give attention to the programs that – told them that they were plan A. Like Jerry Williams, he's the plan B, plan C, plan D kind of guy for us. I think he can be a really good player down the road, but the fact remains the way we recruited him, he was a plan B, C, D kind of guy. He really was, and nobody likes that. They want to go with the, with the teams that have been giving them attention from the get-go, which always drives me crazy. It's kind of the ego of these guys, which sometimes might work against their best interests. Like, if you – I was not highly recruited coming out of high school, and I know you weren't either. So it's, it's hard for us to say because we, we didn't get to experience it. But if you were one of these guys, just because a school didn't offer you early, would, would you really hold that against them if it was a better situation for you? Not, old, not really, no. I, I mean, I don't think I would. Uh, at least I would like to tell myself I would. I, I think it's crazy that they do that. I know everybody, we, have, we all have egos. We all want to feel loved. We all want to feel the attention. We want to feel like we're the priority. That's, that's human nature. It's natural. But come on, so so what? We offer you, you know, a couple months after all these other schools. I get it, you're mad, but if you really want to go to Georgia, if that's really where you want to go, if this really is the better situation for you, if it really is a better program than the other offers you have, is a better program than Kentucky, 
Come on, get over it, dude. That's that's why. I, I mean, I, I'm no one. I mean, I, I shouldn't be able to tell this guy what to think. But if I'm looking, if I'm the parent, I would say, come on, buddy. Dude, come on. Like, yeah, get over it. Get over yourself. These guys offered you late. I understand that. But if it's a better situation for you, then then go there. Put it behind you. Maybe it's not a better situation. Maybe he just likes it at Kentucky. Maybe he likes it somewhere else. But maybe that's a possibility. But this idea that you hold it against programs that don't offer you earlier in the process, uh, uh, come on. I, I think that's a little much, a little much. All right, guys. Well, that's it for the show today. We just want to talk about quarterbacks and the quarterback recruiting. I know that's been a hot-button topic here of late. Uh, definitely appreciate you guys listening to the show. I do also want to throw this out there before we get out of here. I know you guys probably tune me out when I talk about college tennis, but the NCAA tournament is here. It's in Athens starting this weekend. We have the, the first two rounds uh, we'll be playing Florida A&M on Friday at 2 p.m. Not an awesome time. It's actually going to be really tough for me to get there. I might get there for the tail end of singles. But if we beat Florida A&M, which we should, you never know, we should, uh, we'll be playing, the guys will be playing at 3 o'clock on Saturday. The ladies will be playing at noon on Saturday, so you make a whole afternoon of it on Saturday. It is 5 bucks uh, to get in for the match during the NCAA tournament. It's free during the regular season. It's 5 bucks. Still not much. Still totally worth it. And if, we, and if the girls win on Saturday, they'll be playing at 2 o'clock on Sunday. So come out, support the, the guys and the girls. They're, both teams are awesome. Guys, just you know, we, just a couple weeks ago, won the SEC tournament. So come out and support the team. The, SEC, the, the National Championship Tournament will not be here. The NCAA Tournament will not be here for at least another five years after this year. So if you get a chance, get up to Athens and check it out. I think everyone in the family would definitely enjoy it. So uh, for Curtis, I'm Tyler. Let us know what you guys think about the quarterback conversation here on Twitter. Hit us up at glory underscore UGA. Email gloryujpodcast at gmail.com. But uh, that's it, guys. All we have for you today. And as always, go dogs.